0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson, and I'm Adam Kempinar.
2: Dr. Lecter, my name is Clarice Starling. May I speak with you?
0: You're one of Jack Crawford's, aren't you? I am, yes. May I see your credentials? Certainly. Closer, please. Closer.
3: Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins in *The Silence of the Lambs*, the 1992 Best Picture winner from director Jonathan Demme, actually won the so-called Big Five that year at the Oscars. When Demme passed away in April, he left behind a rich filmography that deserves Electra-style
1: close-up. And we'll do just that this week with our top five Jonathan Demme moments. Plus, we'll catch up with Demme's 1986 cult road trip comedy *Something Wild*. That and more ahead on Film Spotting.
3: So far, so good, Josh. After that review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, I thought maybe we'd get a little more hate mail at this point.
1: Who knows? People it have been could reasonable. could still be coming. I think. Maybe it's because we took the time to also find some positive things, as Sam encourages us and to do. And there are. And there were positive yeah. things. We were just not, you know, as wild about it as most people. But no. that's okay.
3: And that was a movie, too, that we did come straight from the theater, which I point out for no reason other than we were still processing as we like to say. But have you we changed feel, your mind much? No, we feel pretty, processed enough. Pretty set in yeah. our reactions probably to that film. We do encourage any feedback that you would like to share with us though, including telling us that we were wrong. And we will have a little bit of that as we get into the next segment and we hear from a listener in the form of a voicemail. And speaking of voicemails, we got some really good ones to share this week during our top five, we are paying tribute to Jonathan Demme with our top five Jonathan Demi moments. Do you have any insights any nuggets you want to share in terms of how you approach the list what you learn from the list josh before we get there
1: we'll get into it when we share a list because yeah okay. I, I found a theme that i worked my list around after revisiting a bunch of the yeah. films and just looking at scenes one thing stood out in particular hmm. that i had to hook my list on
3: okay i found five different things so slightly different approaches and at the same time we did find a structure anyway to apply to the list. I look forward to hearing your picks as we get to that later in the show.
1: First though, let's start our demi appreciation with 1986's Something Wild, the Jeff Daniels Melanie Griffith comedy that we both recently watched for the first time.
4: Hey you! Hey! Hey! Hey, you didn't pay for your lunch.
0: What?
4: You didn't pay your bill,
5: did
0: you? Oh, sure I paid, didn't I?
5: The checks in your pocket. Right, okay, let me take care of that right now. I'm sorry, uh, I don't know how this happened. It's just, I, it's, this is just, uh, you know, I got a lot of things on my mind, you know, business things, and I just, I simply forgot, that's all.
4: You deliberately walked out without paying that check.
5: I did not. Here, come on,
0: take, just take the money and, you know, and keep the change, and.
4: Fine, maybe you'd like to tell a cop. No, don't,
0: no, don't, no, don't, just. Let me guess, sometimes you don't pay for your lunch. Or maybe you steal the occasional
2: candy bar or newspaper. You're a closet rebel.
1: For all of our differences, Adam, and longtime listeners will know which reviews to go to that will reveal our differences, I think it's safe to say we share one thing in common. Neither of us has much of a closet rebel in him. No, Maybe I'm wrong about that, and you can correct (laughs) me in this review, but just guessing here. You saw a lot of yourself in Jeff Daniels, didn't you? (laughs) Well, I did. Closet rebel is the term that Melanie Griffith's Lulu uses to describe Jeff Daniels' Charlie in Something Wild. He's a waspy, yuppie type, yet— At the beginning here, he skips out on his lunch check Hmm. in this diner. Now, Lulu, who is a wild child on the outside and the inside, notices this, and she's so impressed that she invites him on an impulsive road trip, one that may prove too good to be true. This is distinctively a Jonathan Demme film, and we'll get to those touches. I especially want to talk about the use of diegetic music. But let's start with this notion of rebelliousness, particularly Rebelliousness against a 1980s understanding of square, middle class, nuclear family propriety Mm -hmm. and comfortability. As something wild unspools in its entirety, did your square self respond to it mostly as a vicarious fantasy or did it strike you as a cautionary tale? Maybe it was something in between. And of course, there's always the chance that I do have you pegged entirely wrong. Maybe you have, as Charlie claims early on, channeled your rebellion mainstream, <laughs> and you are a closet rebel after all. That's a great line when he tries to pass that off in the movie. And
3: yeah, maybe I should have said that we both saw some of ourselves in that early version of Jeff Daniels' Charlie, and maybe we have something to aspire to uh-huh, in terms right. of just how rebellious he does get. But. To your question, I think the brilliance of this movie, and it is a pretty brilliant movie, is that it's both of those things in terms of being a fantasy and being a cautionary tale. It might be seven or eight other things simultaneously, which also adds to the brilliance of the movie. But I think you are getting at one of the things I appreciated most about the movie. Everything about Lulu and Charlie's relationship is, of course, A construct she may or may not be quite this wild and reckless and impulsive in her everyday life but we do come to learn that lulu isn't even really lulu her name's audrey she's wearing a wig this is to some extent a character she's playing charlie very clearly playing a character too he had to be forced into his role by lulu but once he gets there he's all in and one of my favorite scenes is one that occurs at a gas station later in the film where after making all these comments to the effect that he can't use the company's plastic for anything that isn't business related, he just keeps buying whatever the clerk
1: (laughs) suggests to him. Once he goes, it's like, sure, whatever, charge it all. And in his mind, that's as wild as it can get, right, is just burning through the company card. Right.
3: Now, he hasn't actually undergone any kind of major transformation except in his head and that perception is really powerful powerful enough to make you do things you wouldn't normally do or even think that you're capable of but it is perception it is fantasy and at some point the fantasy is going to end and reality is going to settle back in lulu says to him outside the class reunion she gets him to come to unwittingly and this is at a point where he's kind of slipped back into the worrying charlie driggs he says i can't handle this and she says look tomorrow you're going to wake up you're still going to be Charlie Driggs. The goal is to keep dreaming, keep the fantasy going as long as possible. When they wake up, though, in this movie, Demi really has them wake up. I think about that long ride through the night in the car, mostly in silence, back to New York. And as they get close, Lulu says to him, I just don't want to go back to my apartment yet, back to her life. And we see them take the exit to go to his place and They crash in exhaustion. And at this point, Josh, all of the exuberance, all of the energy that has been such a staple of this film up to this point, it's completely gone. Something just seems broken that they may or may not ever be able to retrieve, but maybe they weren't ever meant to have it in the first place because it was always just this fantasy. It only worked if they were both playing their roles. This movie does, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, have mostly a happy ending, so it might be hard to say it's too cautionary, But I think Demi is acutely aware of the positive
1: power of fantasy, but also the folly of it. That's a really remarkable move it makes where it does let the energy drop Mm -hmm. and let the self-reflection take place what a risk. I mean, where you could lose the audience, even though you're doing something that should be new and exciting for an audience. It is it is an energy shift. It's also where you start to realize that this is much a personal awakening for Audrey, yes, as for Charlie. And I like that about the movie very much. I think this is so special because it's capturing that tension in between this push and pull between the fantasy and the reality. Mm-hmm. so if these characters are both asking these questions of uh, what's a, what's a good way for me who I am to live you know it's it's not necessarily saying that to be an individual you have to be a sociopath. We meet a sociopath right we do and that's one option for standing out from the crowd and making yourself be a unique person. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to go that far. And at the same time, you know, not doing that doesn't mean you have to be completely boring either or follow the crowd or be a lemming. It's about finding that tension in between and how that might look differently for you depending on your personality. Mm -hmm. So maybe there are some things Audrey wants to rein in from her life and then there are maybe some things that Charlie wants to push a little bit in his. And so watching them both come to that realization alongside each other on this parallel journey is really sweet in a way that puts it outside of the category of, it nods to this, absolutely, but romantic comedy Mm -hmm. or anything like that. It becomes something a little bit more personal individually for both characters, even though they're experiencing it at the same time.
3: Absolutely. I think you're right. And I think along those lines, this notion of defining who you're going to be trying to come to terms with that in some way and your identity I think it does come back to the notion of quote unquote the American dream if that's too loaded a phrase or too cliche the idea being more of just being happy what it means to be happy in society and I suppose as an American in society but that too Josh is mostly about perception It's about how you choose to look at your life and the choices you've made. I don't think it's purely coincidental that this movie does take place in 1986, the year it was released. And we know that because they go to her 10-year high school reunion, and they're the class of 76, the bicentennial. Outside the dance, on the sign, it says the spirit of 76, and everything is red, white, and blue and overly patriotic, and there are flags everywhere. So, okay, being happy... In America, in modern America, is it being the vice president and having all the things that come with that, including that plastic? And then if the answer is yeah, what happens when something goes wrong with that perfect wife and the boy and the girl? Is it living like Ray? You mentioned the sociopath we're going to meet later in the film, Ray Liotta, in his film debut, and it's a really remarkable one. He's a character who can have his freedom taken away, but when he's free, he's truly free. He's making all of his own rules, playing completely by his own book, not beholden to anyone else. Or, Josh, is the life that Ray makes fun of? Do you remember when they're in the hotel room and he's reading the booklet of the people who couldn't make it to the reunion?
5: I have recently completed my managerial training for the LB discount shoe stores. (laughs) It looks like I'll soon
1: be living in Fairfield, Iowa where a new franchise has just opened. Oh, boy. Accompanying me will be my wife, Joyce, and three small fries. Billy, five, Tina, three, and the newest addition, little Eric Jr., 11 months. (laughs) What a
4: dumb shit. (laughs) What? good change.
3: Well, that's easy for someone like Ray to mock. It might even be easy for us or any audience members to mock. But maybe he's really happy. Maybe that's his version of the perfect life. You even see a character like the younger girl. She's a teenager or probably in her 20s anyway, that Ray seduces Mm -hmm. at one point, who's bored out of her mind working behind the counter at some resort or some hotel, the gift shop, basically. And she's just dying for anyone to come release her, just like Lulu comes and releases Jeff Daniels. She thinks Ray is going to be that guy. Everybody's searching for that answer that's going to
1: make them happy. Didn't realize this was Ray Liotta's debut. And man, he almost (laughs) takes away this movie from what it had been doing. He is such an immediate charismatic but dangerous presence those are the words charismatic and dangerous and that's exactly what he's supposed to be here right he's he's the one guy you see coming into this reunion that you want to know what his story is but you don't want to hear it from him no that's true (laughs) because that's going to lead to where things eventually go yeah and what i love about how demi handles this character too is he lets him be the menace Yet also, I think it's in that reading of that scene you talked about where he is making fun of everyone else in the class. You almost sense just the insecurity that is driving that more than anything else. And there is a close-up shot in here. We won't say what's happening Mm -hmm. of Leota at the end that, oh, my gosh, all of the sudden, not only because of what's happening does it really catch your attention, but it's so close and so tight and his eyes are so big he suddenly becomes so pretty. He does. And you don't think about Leota that way. Mm -hmm. And to see him... He becomes really human in that moment. Yeah, yeah. And for Demi to recognize that and put that at the center is just one of those maybe Demi touches that we can talk about. I think you're right about the placing of this class being 10 years, and it was 76 you know, the dismal 70s or that's all gone, mm-hmm. right? By 86, yep. things are flying high. Yeah. And so Me generation. all of these people at this reunion are celebrating, whereas in 76 when they were in high school, you know, maybe America wouldn't be something to celebrate necessarily for them. Now they are absolutely doing that. So it is a big party. And this ties into, you know, very much a parallel film with Scorsese's After Hours. It is. And in a lot I think of it's ways, a better film. plot, I do too. I personally. do too. That's, I, I think it has to do, and we've talked about this and differed on it a little bit, but Scorsese's handling a broader humor. Mm-hmm. And I think Demi has the right touch for what is going on here. But Ray Liotta is also just one of many characters who aren't the main two, but become so crucial. Now, he's, yes. he's an example of like, he's probably the third biggest part in the film. But really, anytime someone comes on screen – and here's a Debbie Quality, I think – you know that they're going to be more than servicing the plot, Yep. right? They're not yep. just there to move – that. whether it's the, the young clerk working in the gift shop that you mentioned or when we get to talking about the music, mm-hmm. uh, I want to – Discuss how those people are used as more than just being there to provide the background music.
3: Yeah, let's get into that. And actually, to help out the conversation a little bit, we have a listener who was thinking the same way as us when he was thinking about his favorite Jonathan Demi moment. It happens to come from this movie, Something Wild.
2: Hello, Adam and Josh. This is Tom Kuzmarskis from Chicago with my favorite Jonathan Demi moment. My choice is from my favorite Demi film, Something Wild. It's a scene where the hotel manager gives Jeff Daniels some Pepto-Bismol for his hangover and says to him, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. It's a great line. What's great about this moment is that the line was an ad-lib by the actor playing the hotel guy. Then he let the actor say the line without telling Jeff Daniels, and you can even see Daniels reacting with surprise and delight when he first hears the line. Daniels even suggests the line be used again near the end of the film which was great because it sums up the story so well. Something wild, great film, with a great soundtrack. Thanks a lot, guys.
3: Thank you, Tom, for that. I had no idea that that was essentially an ad-lib line, and it very much does come back into play later in the film. I'm with you completely that one of the real pleasures of this film is watching this road movie through the American landscape and seeing such a diverse cross-section of people. And we get it in those touches, like when he pulls into a parking lot to spy on Ray, Ray Liotta's character, name Ray in the film, and Lulu, and he pulls into the parking lot of a black church, and you have all these people who are coming to church, and they're just kind of there in the background, but there is a point where we're going to hear from one of those characters, and it's a moment where they're actually reaching out to offer him a helping hand. That scene at the gas station where that character isn't just the clerk you see in a million films who sells something to the guy. He becomes someone you remember from the movie. Even, how about the guy who shows up to use the phone, the payphone, when, again, Charlie is spying on them. He's on a motorcycle, Yeah, he pulls up on a motorcycle and he's got got his dog (laughs) somehow seated perfectly behind him on the motorcycle. And he's just sitting still. Great posture. But, Those are those little Demi touches and Mm -hmm. little flourishes that just make you appreciate all those different faces that you see populating this world. And one thing I really noticed by the end of the film, too, we're going to talk about music a lot, not only probably here with this review, but as we get into the top five, obviously a key component of Demi's work and something he was extremely passionate about. But I started to recognize by the end of this film certain ways that he almost felt like a conductor as a director in terms of the movement. It isn't necessarily about the camera doing anything really extravagant or drawing a lot of attention to itself, but characters sort of unnecessarily wandering through frames at certain moments. And as I was picking scenes or looking for scenes for my top five, I even found one moment, Josh, in Philadelphia, where it's during the trial scene and they cut away for no reason to a guy walking out of a bathroom. And then he walks from the bathroom right into the courtroom. And it turns out he's Hmm. just a guy who was watching the trial. But it's just this little way, this little transition to break up, I suppose, the monotony of this trial scene. And that character all of a sudden Gets some focus. And he just does that a lot in his films. He does it a lot here. And as we've said, it's really one of the treats of this movie.
1: It's almost a willingness to see the people at the periphery of these stories as bonuses rather than necessary elements that have to be fit in some way. You mm-hmm. know, they're, they're welcome. Right. Everyone who appears in a demi-frame is welcome there. Mm-hmm. And you feel that very much in Something Wild. So, yeah, the music, you know, the, this diegetic music, that it's, it's emanating from something on the screen whether it's during Lulu's seduction scene where she puts on uh it's is it a tape player I mm-hmm. forget but yes yeah, she plays music there in the hotel room so you have it as simple as that you know rather than just having it bubble up on the soundtrack uh, we see where it's coming from and we understand music's important to her at least for this moment but then you get things like the Feelies playing The band at the reunion. Right. And And they're actually playing the music. It's very clear. And we linger over them Mm -hmm. and we get a sense again. They're, you know, they're welcome. They're not just there so that the other characters can dance. They're there to make this a party. Right. And it's they're given the time to do that. The other moment at that one gas station where he stops, as he goes in, there's these four guys beatboxing outside. And that again is not just something to add a little bit of detail. It's given a few more beats than a normal film would yes. so that we really get a sense of what their music yeah, is he like. He wants to showcase them. He wants to showcase that
3: And that happens too at the end of the film. It does. Beautiful ending with Sister Carol is her name and she's playing a waitress in the movie and then all of a sudden she goes from being that waitress to a performer who's singing right to the camera and the end credits of this movie are really wonderful. I want to go back to Leota real quick and just okay. point out because he is so good at being the bad guy here he's immediately a little bit scary use the right word menacing there's something just a little too wide about those eyes and the way he doesn't blink very often but he is so charismatic that you can't help but be drawn to him and kind of like him even as he's unnerving you it's not unlike hannibal lecter to an extent (laughs) Demi knows what to do with these types of characters. And I found a great quote from him actually talking about Leota. He said, this is why Demi was a brilliant director. Though he was so violent, I'd go up to Ray Leota and whisper, nicest guy in the world. Because sure enough to that character, he is. He's the hero. So Demi. That comes through. Intrinsically understanding that that bad guy, like most bad guys in the world, don't think they're bad guys. He thinks he's entirely proper everything he's doing is properly motivated in terms of getting his wife back and he's just doing yeah, he's in the right exactly what he should be doing so he's going to be a little bit charming and he's going to be seductive and that certainly adds so much more than if he came on screen and we immediately didn't feel any connection between him and charlie at all charlie might even see in him a little bit of the guy he kind of wants to be and i love oh, that, yeah. that that factor gets to come through here in the movie as opposed to playing it a little more straightforward that Big dance number two, one of the more famous scenes from this movie, I think, where we see Charlie finally let loose. He is dancing with Melanie Griffith. So fun. The Feelies are playing David Bowie's "Fame," and he does come out of his shell. But what I love about it, Josh, and this is again where Demi doesn't succumb to cliches. Doesn't turn out to be that class reunion, synchronized dance kind of moment where they do something really extravagant. He's just doing his own thing, but he's doing it for her. He's doing it to show Lulu, not even try to impress her, really just to show her that he is letting loose, that he is capable of doing that. And it seems only appropriate as well as we're talking about the way Demi manages to add a little bit of satire and a little bit of darkness to this film, that the song is fame after all. It isn't the big, rousing high school anthem. It's a David Bowie song that was questioning, anyway, let's say, some fundamental American values or world values in terms of how people did view celebrities. So it just imbues something that could have been that really grandstanding kind of moment and it is that on some level, because we're so impressed with the character for going there, but it gives it just another, another layer.
1: Yeah, it's the movie's awareness that we are being told about through the choice of the song, but also the fact that the movie puts us inside Charlie's awareness of himself at that moment. Yeah. We completely understand the freedom that he's feeling there. We do. I think largely because of the terribleness of Jeff Daniels' dancing. You know? Yes. No one dances like that for that long unless they just don't give a crap right. and they feel completely loose and free mm-hmm. and that's what he's doing there I really like Jeff Daniels in this film he's and so he's, good and this is maybe he's my favorite perfect. moment he, that's the word because he has that like his earnestness at the start yes. is so on point yet you if you look at him there's something goofy about him he, he's mm-hmm. just like he's off a tad from yes. what the yuppie the ideal yuppie would be like the
3: guy he runs into from his office yes. at the class reunion yeah. he could be that guy He's not.
1: There is maybe that closet rebel there. There's a little bit else going on. And once he gets to be more comic, you know, obviously he has the skills for that as well when things become a little bit more broad. So, yeah, Daniels is great. And Griffith, you know, it made me think when you're talking about Leota being scary, I realized how frightening he was the most in Audrey's responses to him. Yes. And I also think that that's where Griffith's performance... I mean, obviously, it gets more complicated because she's shedding layers as the movie goes on. Mm -hmm. And here seems to be where that last bit of pretend falls for Audrey. And the performance just gets more complicated at that point. There's a sadness to her that we don't associate with Griffith Mm -hmm. normally. And I think she carries that through the rest of the film in a way that makes this really interesting from what, you know, may have been a template the first 20 minutes of this film she's the template for the Manic Pixie Dream Girl yeah right and then the movie gives so much more to the character as it moves on from that point and, and Griffith does as well in her performance yeah I think she's remarkable as
3: well and I think that she does nail that melancholy and that world weariness a little bit that only comes in the second part of the film that first part of the film she completely taps into I think fair to say what became ultimately part of her persona and it began in the film that was her breakout film just before Something Wild, which was Brian De Palma's Body Devil, which we talked about here on the show, she is very good at tapping into being the object of male fantasies. And that is very much what she is here. It's something about the voice and the way she carries herself physically. She knows how to play into that to capture that element. She really does. But she's also very funny. She has her own bouts of earnestness, the way jeff daniels does and his character charlie so they really are comedically anyway i think a perfect match oh
0: all right look just let's uh let's uh i'll tell you what you, you, you turn around we get out of the tunnel let's just go back this, this is the fun
1: okay.
0: oh don't god don't drink please this is dangerous it's
1: dangerous don't do that god no look you don't turn around and take take me back you're gonna make me do something that i don't want to do
2: i can hardly wait charlie
1: so do you think the finale, and I guess maybe we can spoil it, it's an 86 film, mm-hmm. is is it a little jarring in how, I guess, violent it yeah. gets? I yeah. mean, it, there is that moment involving Leota that you almost need the violence to mm-hmm. get to that really moving moment but i almost felt like for a little bit there i was thrown into a, a different film
3: yeah it's there but i do think demi pulls it off and i think we should note because i'm sure it's going to come up during the top five that close-up you mentioned in that kind of showdown between charlie and ray it's one of those classic demi close-ups and i don't know if i saw it or noticed it anyway at any other point in the film but it's used to great effect here where very tight extreme close-ups cutting between Leota's face and Jeff Daniels' face and they are looking right at the camera. So they are looking at us. They're breaking the fourth wall and that point of view is something very near and dear to Demi's heart and I think that heightens a lot of the intensity and the fear of that scene. I think it works because as I was alluding to off the top, Josh, I think we see a steady kind of progression to that point where not only does reality set in and the fantasy's over but reality can be really dark and really dangerous and that fantasy isn't something they just wake up from they are they are dragged out of that fantasy kicking and screaming Mm -hmm. and i felt like it worked maybe in the hands of a lesser director i would have been more bothered by the shift in tone i felt like it worked
1: yeah and like i said it does get us to that really wonderful close-up moment which is worth it something wild is
3: sadly not
1: widely available
3: it's not currently streaming But it is available on DVD from Netflix, or you can look for it at your local library. If you see the film, or if you have seen it and agree or disagree
1: with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. So, as usual, Massacre Theater was the last part of the show we threw together this week, which somehow only makes our performances better. (laughs) We'll see. I don't know how that works. That's next, though, along with the Film Spotting Top 5 Jonathan Demi Moments. Stay with us.
5: Hey guys, this is Matt over in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I just wanted to um, give you my feedback on Guardians 2, and I do hear what you guys are saying, but you are completely wrong. Um, I actually thought Guardians 2 was a really fun film this year. Um, I loved that the director was able to keep the same tone from the first film, and that little bit of a lighthearted attitude that I think the MCU is sorely missing in a lot of their films. I really especially love the opening sequence of Groot dancing while all the action happens in the background and how that mirrors the opening of Peter Quill dancing in the first film. Um, And one quick tip that I do want to leave with you guys. I know we all hate 3D movies, um, but we are, now and again, stuck seeing one. Um, so the best thing you can do is move those glasses towards the end of your nose, um, does a couple of things. It reduces the field of vision. So you get the whole picture, not just focused on the center. And it really helps to minimize that 3d effect. Um, so leaving that with you guys, um, great show. Keep up the great work.
3: Well, I don't know about you, Josh, Matt, in Raleigh, with that great voicemail, maybe didn't convince me to change my viewpoint on Guardians 2, but he absolutely convinced me to try that little 3D trick. Oh, I'm absolutely going to try it. Then again, I hope I never see another one, but I know I'm going to have to.
1: I love that we are paying extra to use something that we have to develop workarounds for, right? You know that's that's just great. You know he makes it a good point great. about the pairing mm-hmm. of the openings. Which I didn't think lost of that. on me because yeah, that I haven't true. seen Guardians one in a hundred years, and since that, it came out, anyway. that dancing baby Groot is one of the highlights, <laughs> at least for me. So I'll give him that. Um, yeah, I mean. What I've been saying to people as they keep asking is if you, if you were high on the first one, this is going to give you that and you'll be happy with it. That seems to be the case from the people who have seen it that I've hmm. talked to now. So enjoy it. That's OK. Well, you can it have is. It. Yeah, please. I would rather enjoy myself
3: always at the theater, Josh. We unfortunately just didn't have quite as good a time as Matt did. We have been having a very good time with our Agnes Varda Marathon. Though yeah, after it's been a great one. Yeah, after watching the Beaches of Agnes, the last film in the marathon, I now realize that we have, of course, really been Americanizing her name. As not only do they call her more Agnes yes. instead of Agnes, they call her Varda. It's not too late. Varda, but it's too late. We we just got to stick with We're it. We're sticking and... with our really dumb yep. American pronunciation of everything. Our apologies. 2008, though, is when the Beaches of Agnes came out. A perfect film to culminate our Agnes Varda marathon. And that's something we discussed in our review of The Beaches of Agnes, which we have shared in a separate podcast. It's already there in our feed. If you don't already subscribe to FilmSpotting via Apple Podcasts or your other favorite podcast app, you can do so and you can get some of that, I suppose, kind of bonus content where not only did we Talk about Beaches of Agnes, but we shared our Agnes Varda Marathon Awards, the CLIOs. So, best
1: performance, best scene or moment, best picture, some other categories as well. Our Varda Marathon, of course, is sponsored by MUBI, cult classic independent films from around the world. Everyday movies experts introduce you to a film that they love, then you have a whole month to watch it. That means there's always 30 extraordinary films for you to enjoy. Listeners of Film Spotting, you can try Movie free for a month. All you have to do is go to Movie dot com slash film spotting. That's M U B I dot com slash film spotting and you can redeem now. Next week on the show, we think we have a pretty good one plan. We are going to discuss
3: the new alien movie, Alien Covenant. Don't call it convent. No. Even though that's it's really easy fun. to do and it sounds really alien fun. Convent. Doesn't it? They'll get I've to seen that. I've seen a few people make that mistake on Twitter, maybe purposefully. We're going to talk about that film and we are going to share Our top five alien attacks. Now, that does not mean attacks that occur in alien films. Should we set the alien films aside? Maybe we should. We can go outside. In fact, it sounds like we are going to force ourselves to go outside the alien franchise. Yeah. Any alien attack in any film that features aliens. As of right now, yeah, I I don't have any that are immediately popping into my head as go-to picks. Maybe I'm just slow on the
1: uptake here, but do you have some? Oh, yeah. OK. Uh, and, you know, this means we might be talking some more Mars Attacks at him. Well, that Th- that'll means i have
3: to so see happy. Mars Attacks. So <laughs> I'm OK with that. I'm just glad there aren't any aliens that I can remember in Pain and Gain. It is a Michael Bay film. Who knows? Maybe Probably they
1: the only thing missing from that excellent, excellent piece <laughs> of cinema. Well, we want to know your
3: favorite alien attack scenes or scene. And you can let us know that by emailing us feedback at filmspotting.net. Or if you leave us a voicemail, we might just play it in the show. The number is 312 264 0744, maybe the easier way to do it, just send us an MP3 file. Go ahead and record it right there on your computer.
1: So many voicemails in this show, which we love. Mm-hmm. It adds a lot, gets a variety of voices in here. So yeah, please do that if you have a favorite alien attack.
3: Over at our website, filmspotting.net, is where you can find our biweekly poll questions. And as we last shared, our summer movie preview, our top five questions about the summer movie season, we asked you this poll. These summer 2017 movies don't look good. Which one are we... Probably underestimating, we gave you the options Baywatch, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, The Mummy, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, and Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, the latest from Luke Besson. We did also give you the option to vote, no, it's fine, you can skip these. Josh, have you looked
1: at the results at all? I haven't, but I did want to talk to you about the poll when I went to vote the other day at film. Interesting Body. thing Net. happened. Yeah, I, I thought, well, I should probably go vote for... What I had chosen, the Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> Which film. was the most wrong choice. <laughs> and lo and behold, it wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. It was that was just a glitch? Well,
3: <laughs> there's lots of glitches that happen uh-huh. on the Internet. Okay. It's a new website. I, I don't who, know.
1: Who built the new website? Yeah,
3: okay, I did. So uh-huh. here's the thing. When we were discussing the poll, I did suggest to Sam, our master, our producer, that I wasn't sure Dead Men tell no... Whatever the heck the movie's called, it doesn't need to be in this poll question. Mm-hmm. It just—who cares about this? And guess what? So far, the results, having now been put back in the poll, yeah. Totally validated.
1: Well my position. After not being a part of the poll for how many days. It was only up for about
3: a day. Sam caught it. (laughs) Sam caught it and I rectified it. It was unintentional, though Mm -hmm. subconsciously completely intentional (laughs) that I left that out. So no pirates Pirates is gonna take a lot of votes to come back and win this one. We did throw out there that if no it's fine, you can skip these, didn't win it, and it's in contention right now. Maybe the winner then meant that we would be required to see it and talk about it. And right now, it's looking like one of these movies might be it. All right. Don't spoil it. I won't spoil it. Okay. We'll save it for next week. You can vote now. Filmspotting.net. We had a recent giveaway on our show as the Chicago Critics Film Festival is kicking off. This weekend started May 12th. that runs through May 18th. There's a new Sam Elliott film playing at the fest called The Hero. And we gave away some admit to passes to see that movie at the music box. We asked you for your favorite Sam Elliott performance. Shared a couple of those responses on our last show, Josh. You remember that Trey Chambers wrote in with his favorite Elliott performance. It was Virgil Earp in Tombstone. Man, I love that movie. And he had a query for Film Spotting Nation about a line of dialogue in the film. He wrote, Elliot says of his wife, maiden name with Sullivan and everyone laughs. Trey wants to know why is that funny? Maybe the whole cast is just afraid of Sam Elliott.
1: We have a listener with an answer. That would be Neil Gorman. He said, if you're wondering why that would have been funny back then, I think the answer is that the heavyweight champion of the world at that time would have been a guy named John L. Sullivan, who was famous for throwing down and fighting strangers basically out of boredom. So I think Virgil's line in the film was another way of saying that his own wife was someone you would generally not want to mess with. Hope that helps.
3: It does help. It helps me anyway. I Makes hope it helps, me. Trey. And separately, we got another email from listener C. Robert Dimitri saying the same thing. So we're going to go with that answer. It certainly works for me.
1: All right. So I've got to do another book plug here, Adam. You know we're coming down to the publication date for Movies Our Prayers, June 13th. Absolutely. 13. I've been making the rounds. Wait, I, I thought I it was June say... 6. Why do I have it's, these dates wrong all it's the time? It said that for a while on Amazon, but I think they've changed it. It's actually It the is 13th. the 13th. Yes, June okay. 13th. So, I've been making the rounds on other podcasts that have been nice enough to invite me to mm-hmm. do a little promo and be part of their fun. So, I want to say thanks to Feelin' Film and the Real World Theology podcast. I did some Fate of the Furious talk with Real World Theology, which was nice cuz we didn't get to do that together here on the show. Mm-hmm. And then, you're going to be jealous of this. On Feelin Film, we got to talk about Top Gun. I love it. I know we had tossed that around as a sacred cow. Yep. And I think we should still do it. There's. You do. Yeah. There was. There was more stuff there than I thought in Top Gun. So maybe we'll get to okay. that at some point.
3: I do love the way you're able to find lots of little messages in these
1: '80s films. Hey, I do it who knows what I'll find in Vision Quest. I mean, that thing's Now just, there we go. That's just ripe, I'm sure. It is. <laughs> it is ripe. After but Top Gun,
3: we'll get to Vision I'm Quest. I'm just so grateful that you didn't trash Top Gun, which is what I assumed
1: you would do when you went on the show. I had assumed that too. So, surprised myself. <laughs> so meanwhile, I'm out doing that, you I, you I, get to have I'm fun. I'm not going to talk about it yet because sitting in, you should No, talk I'm not going to talk
3: about it yet because I just I don't know what the plan is. I assume it's going to be posted, and I assume it will be posted by the time people are listening to this. So maybe next week on the show I'll officially do it. But as of now, it's not up. So are who you knows? worried? Are you worried you were that bad? <laughs> I wasn't great. I did appear on another podcast this past weekend, and it was one of the highlights of my life. I don't know that it will be that way for listeners out there. In fact, I'm sure I'm going to get chided for not having quite the movie knowledge. Your performances, yeah, lacking. Some up. may expect. But I had an absolute blast, and yeah, maybe I can be more forthcoming with details next week, That's a tease. Wow. (laughs) Well, let's get to the real deal. Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene, and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, we massacred this scene.
0: You've pushed them too hard. Steve and I invite you to this cabin
6: as my friend. Not to criticize nor to comment on my command. Well... Should I leave you until you're in a more harmonious frame of mind? What would you have me do, Stephen? Tip the ship's grog over the side. Stop their grog? Nagel was drunk when he insulted Holland. Did you know that? Stop 200 years of privilege and tradition. I'd rather have them three sheets to the wind on occasion than have a mutiny on my hands.
5: You see, I'm rather understanding of mutinies. Men pressed from their homes, their chosen occupations, confined for months aboard a wooden prison... Stephen, I profoundly respect
6: your right to disagree with me here in this cabin, but I can only afford one rebel on this ship. I hate it when you talk at the service in this way. It makes me so very low.
1: So Russell Crowe there as Captain Jack Aubrey, a highly caffeinated
6: Russell Crowe, I think. <laughs> In
1: your rendition, yes. <laughs> Stop two hundred years of privilege and tradition. I'd rather have them three sheets to the wind on occasion than have a mutiny on my hands. Paul batney is Doctor Stephen Maturin. Metro I I, I I don't, don't remember know. this film no, that I don't well. remember the film is 2003's master and commander the far side of the world adapted from the very well-loved Patrick O'Brien novels Peter Weir did that along with John Colley and it was directed by Weir you did just completely infuriate all the
3: people out there who love the Patrick O'Brien novels and I'll know exactly how to properly pronounce that doctor's name but that's fine you're not kidding either. <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm not yeah, kidding. These are serious fans of these books. Yeah. That Massacre was part of a show that included our top five movie expeditions we'd sign up for, along with a review of the very good The Lost City of Z. Mark Chandler in Crogan, New York, said, that would be an expedition I would love to go on to see the Galapagos Islands 20 years before Darwin. Interestingly, Paul Bettany has played both Dr. Maturin and... Charles Darwin. I just finished reading the 12th book in the series. So Mark's one of the guys who's going to
1: write in. That is commitment, Mark. All right, Griffin Brumbaugh in Arlington, Virginia said, I kind of had a feeling that it might be your choice for the film after Adam described the film as one character trying to go on an expedition but not being allowed. Hmm. But the real kicker was Josh's excellent accent as Captain Jack <laughs> Aubrey. Oh, how about that? If you listen close enough, Josh hit some of those dry and deep notes that Russell Crowe seems to use in all of his movies. Is this a wine or a performance? Some, hey, some is all I'm going for, Griffin. Also a note on the sense of discovery from the film. Paul Bettany is able to capture a year for adventure and discovery in that film, that I feel few have been able to showcase before or since. And when compared to a second attempt to mimic this sense of discovery in creation, also a Paul Bettany film, it falls completely flat. But maybe that's why Master and Commander is one of my favorite films ever. How is it not in your pantheon yet, my dudes? <laughs> well, it is
3: a movie that I know Sam and I, in the early days of film spotting, gave lots of love. It made a few different top fives. I really do love the movie master and commander and that's the movie that mark chandler was referencing as well the charles darwin movie bettany was the star of that film called creation a movie i saw at the toronto film fest whatever year that was that it came out maybe 2008 i want to say or 2007 and griffin's right it's not a good movie it's really not good despite my love for paul Bettney, i think griffin describes his performance there very well he's an
1: actor i always enjoy seeing on screen So Master and Commander I like as well. I don't know if it's the Weir film I'd put in the Pantheon. Which one would you go? With? I don't know. Picnic at Hanging Rock? Perhaps. Good film. I mean, Truman Show. Truman Show Truman very good. is maybe the yeah, one I think I'd I would i probably lean there, with. too. pantheon.
3: I'm also still a big fan of Witness, but I think I might be with you there. We finally got this one, Josh, from Marie, who says, Massacre Theatre lived up to its name this week with a horrendous take on Master and Commander. Josh's rendition of Captain Aubrey was almost as bad as Russell Crowe's attempt at an English accent. Can't please them all. Finally, someone is not just going to try to placate you. But it was a great pick for this week's top five list, Danger, high seas, cool uniforms, big maps, unexplored lands, nautical terms I think I understand but probably don't, Master and Commander would be at the top of my list. So I'm glad Marie says that and that she's still game because if you go back to Mark's comments where he said it'd be all about seeing the Galapagos Islands 20 years before Darwin, I'm with you on that expedition too. Maybe. But that's not the expedition they're on. This is why I said I don't really think Master and Commander is technically eligible for this list unless you're ready to go to war. They're not out there on some sightseeing mission or some biological survey. They're there to fight French ships that are much faster and heavily armed than them. And lots of things go really wrong in the movie Master and Commander. That little side jaunt is just that, a side jaunt. So I don't think it really works. You can't sign up for the side jaunt. If you wanted to sign up to be on that ship, as and be usual. Captain by Jack Aubrey. As okay. usual, I've lost track of the rules. <laughs> it does happen here on the show from time to time. We're going to announce the winner here, Josh, of Massacre Theater. There are rules sometimes for Massacre Theater as well. And we broke them this week. We don't just have one name you're picking out of the hat, we have five winners because hopefully our listeners recall we are very excited to have a wonderful La La Land prize pack to give away. That film just came out on Blu ray. A couple of weeks ago and we got not only some blu-ray copies but the soundtrack on vinyl for all you great hipsters out there that have a nice record player and sound system josh tell
1: everybody who won all right so here is who is getting the blu-rays julius calixson from Mm -hmm. long beach california congratulations julius ryan Moncrief, he's from hoboken new jersey and mary beth smith from right here in chicago aka the token ginger congratulations blu-ray and the la la land soundtrack on vinyl eric olson from gainesville florida that is you and then the grand prize the blu-ray plus the la la land soundtrack on vinyl plus plus yes a film spotting t-shirt really makes it the grand prize oh man zach ford madison
3: wisconsin congratulations zach congrats to all our winners indeed email feedback at filmspotting.net with your mailing address and we will get those prizes sent off
0: Ruthful, simple. Would that it Would that it twer. What's self? You could say selfful. Ruthful, self. Would that it Would that it. Would that it Why are you doing this? With would that it twer. twer, is, could, the twer. The twer. Just keep
3: still. We move on to this week's edition of Massacre Theatre. A couple tie-ins to this week's show. Fair to a say, confluence Josh. Confluence of tie-ins. <laughs> a confluence of tie-ins, and there's probably a few others that we didn't think of. It's not going to
1: be a very long scene, but that's because we also think it might be a fairly obvious scene. Yeah, it's a little obvious and also very hard to take this scene, so we just wanted to cut it short. (laughs) Maybe that's it. Okay, you're going to start it off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Okay, let's do it. And action. You see, the brain itself feels no pain if that concerns you. For example, Paul won't miss this little piece here, which is the part of the prefrontal lobe, which they say is... The seat of good manners.
3: Your profile at the border stations has five features.
1: I'll trade you. Trade. Stop now, and I'll tell you what they are. How does that word taste to you, Robin? Hmm? Cheap and metallic, like sucking on a greasy coin? And, and scene. scene. So you just threw a random name in there? Oh, yeah. Just See a random that? That name? Was, that was improv, Adam. I, mean, I you realized. just came up with that name. That was going to be too clear. The name that was in So instead of leaving out the name,
3: you made up some random name. Yeah. To throw everybody off the trail. That's right. Okay. Well, there you go. One little hint. We changed that (laughs) name. Was that Robin? Maybe. You don't even know what you said. I don't remember anymore. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, May 22nd.
1: The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. All right, let's get to those Jonathan Demi moments that we wanted to highlight, Adam. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next.
3: You may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. You may find yourself
0: in another part of the world. You may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. You may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. May ask yourself, well,
3: how did I get here?
6: Hi Adam and Josh, it's Scott Tobias from your sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. I'm calling in to talk about Jonathan Demme. Um, I gotta tell you, uh, Jonathan Demme is a loss so immense that I've really tried to avoid processing it, uh, but I'll try uh, just for a second here. Uh, you know, a lot of critics talk about the Lubitsch touch, which is a way of identifying certain special qualities in Ernst Lubitsch's work, and I feel the same way about Demme. You always know you're watching a Jonathan Demme movie, but it's not easy to articulate what the Demme touch is other than a certain warmth and animating spirit. One of my favorite scenes in any Demme movie is the end of Philadelphia, after Tom Hanks's character dies and his friends and family gather together for a wake. Uh, the whole scene is set to Neil Young's Philadelphia, which is a simple and heartbreaking song that's just Neil Young with piano accompaniment. And the song is played over images of people hugging and crying and exchanging casseroles, watching old movies or uh, home movies, I should say, and and then smiling over memories of the departed. Um, It's affecting for being so familiar in a way and for that indefinable something that was the Jonathan Demi touch. Um, You know, we need his humanity now more than ever, and I I really can't believe he's gone. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you, Scott Tobias,
3: for that wonderful transition into our top five this week. We are paying tribute to the great filmmaker Jonathan Demme, and this was a top five I was a little bit nervous about, had some reservations, Josh, mainly because there are still a handful of his films that... I think people consider major works by him that I have not seen. I think a couple of them are going to come up probably in your top five list, but I still feel strongly enough about the movies that are going to be mentioned on my list that I felt like it was worth sharing our appreciation for him as a filmmaker. And maybe more than that, this being a catalyst to share some appreciations by people smarter than us when it comes to Jonathan Demme, like what you just heard
1: from Scott. Yeah, I'm not a completist either, but I think the other challenge with a list like this is Demme is not necessarily the the scene Scott mentioned. You know, that's not a sort of iconic moment mm-hmm. that immediately comes to mind as would if you say a filmmaker like Malik, we've done Malik or, you know, Scorsese. Spielberg, you know, these are immediately scenes come to mind. But what I enjoyed in putting together this list was unearthing these smaller, mostly Mm -hmm. moments that did to me define how a Jonathan Demme film was separate from another film that might be telling the same story. Yeah. And you heard Scott make
3: a great point there. You always know, despite maybe the films not being so brazen stylistically, that we do have a ton of these iconic moments or shots. You always know you're watching a Jonathan Demme movie. And I wondered as I set out to make my list, why is that? What are those characteristics that define a Jonathan Demme movie? And based on my own viewings and reviews of his films and some of the great articles I read online in the wake of his passing, I put together a list and five different areas that I think help sum up what made him so special as a filmmaker, or at least did help to define his approach to filmmaking. And that's how I structured mine. You said you had your own structure.
1: Yeah. And I think probably what happened is one of those areas is what I focused on. And I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into them. We'll find out. But, you know, Scott also mentioned the word humanity in his voicemail there. And I have seen the description of humanist come up in a lot of these writings when it came to Demi. And I think that's right. But for me, he's specifically a musical humanist Mm -hmm. and by that I mean that music was the way he allowed his characters to reveal their true selves or their full selves and then that's also why it was such a method of honest connection between characters music was often a way for the characters themselves to connect with each other and then that transfers to us in the audience so we connect with them as well. you know, there's this um, this hard to capture quality of the emotional nature of music, and sometimes that's used cheaply to work on an audience. but I think Demi's use of it was so particular and inspired in the choice of music, and again, how we talked about in something wild, how it wove into the films at hand that it really helped stand apart. So, Musical moments are what I concentrated on Fantastic! For all five of my picks. And I'm going to start with a 2008 film, Rachel Getting Married. Very small moment in Rachel Getting Married. It involves the song Unknown Legend. But first off, this is... I think known mostly as a really strong showcase for Anne Hathaway, I would highly recommend it to the doubters out there. We seem to be in a phase of doubting Anne Hathaway. Hmm. That kind of goes up and down. And although I think Colossal is getting her some more respect, that's one I still have to. The Oscar jump with. didn't do it. Well, you know, I don't. Uh, I know she's fashionable. Meant skepticism, yeah, to rip on for some reason. Right. She's talented, and she's really great. In Rachel getting married. Yeah, she plays Kim, a drug addict who gets this temporary leave of absence from rehab so that she can go to her sister's wedding, Rachel. And Rachel's played by Rosemary DeWitt. Now, in my review of the film, looking back at this, I said Demi nearly overdoses on bohemian coolness in the wedding scenes. But now, in the larger context uh-huh. of his career, it's actually one of those <laughs> scenes that I want to highlight and that I do appreciate more. This is during the ceremony itself. Part of the Vows, where Kim's soon-to-be brother-in-law, Sidney, who's played by Tunde Adabimpe, he sings this a cappella version of Neil Young, again, Neil Young's unknown legend. He sings it right to his bride. All that I
6: ever wanted was to just hear music. And when I met you, I heard you. And, Rachel, you're the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Thank you for marrying me. You're
0: welcome.
6: (laughs) (laughs) He used to work in a
5: diner Never saw a woman look finer I used to order just to watch her float across the floor
1: So this couple isn't the center of the movie's narrative at all. That's, you know, Kim, which I think... I think it makes this moment especially emblematic of Demi's generosity, the way, and we talked about this in Something while he finds space for his supporting characters, not just to flesh them out, but, you know, it feels as if he's genuinely interested in their stories, too. So he's very welcoming. And this moment gives us just a glimpse into the story of Rachel and Sydney that the movie, it doesn't need, you mm-hmm. know, again, this is Kim's narrative. It would probably work well enough without this. But to set a significant amount of time and paint that relationship musically is is so Demi to me. Yeah, it is. And that was – Perfect, Josh,
3: because my number five is from Rachel getting married as well, though it is not a musical moment. And the Demi element for me that this scene really captures is something that Eric Cohn mentioned in his IndieWire tribute about Demi. He said, every Demi film is a political statement and an intimate portrait of fragile humanity. And at first I thought, well, the fragile humanity certainly applies to Rachel getting married. Mm -hmm. Maybe the political statement part doesn't so much. But in the more I dwelled on it and the more I thought about some of those scenes that you're referencing in terms of that wedding and the party afterwards and just the variety of faces and cultures that come together, there's certainly a political element and probably more obvious political elements as well in that film. But for me, I am focusing on that sense of fragile humanity. I think you see it. In all of his films, I think you could even say it's there in many elements we talked about with something wild. But in terms of not just the Kim character, but everyone who makes up that family, they are all struggling with their own demons and their own ghosts. And sometimes they come up at inopportune or odd times. And I'm thinking of the dishwasher competition. We actually have a listener here to describe that scene in a little bit more detail.
2: Hello, film spotting. this is Jim Pellini from Bethpage, New York, calling in with my favorite Jonathan Demme scene. It's from the, I guess, under scene, Rachel getting married, and it's a terrific scene where the family's all gathered in the kitchen, and there's this great competition loading the dishwasher between the great Bill Irwin, who plays Rachel's uh, and Kim's father, and uh, Rachel's uh, soon-to-be bride. And the scene absolutely turns into this reverie of competition between the two men as they try to see who can most effectively load the dishwasher. But uh, I have my time, please? You have 15 it's seconds right. left. No. 15 no. seconds no. left, and I need more dishes! <laughs> Two. One. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And it absolutely turns on a dime into a gut punch of, I would guess you'd have to call it unresolved grief when Bill Irwin comes across um, an artifact uh, in the dishwasher or the the plates there for his recently deceased son. And Bill Irwin just plays this perfectly. And more importantly, Demi lets the scene dissolve in complete silence as the family members kind of walk out of the room, leaving Kim alone to take in what has just happened and to kind of uh, have her feel afresh what she has wrought in that family and it's just an amazing scene as i said it's a gut punch of a of an emotional scene and it couldn't be couldn't be one of couldn't, couldn't be better better filmed the he just handles it with such a light touch it's my favorite thanks guys take care
3: So this is one of the scenes, Josh, I wasn't able to find online to rewatch it, don't have a copy of Rachel getting married at home. So I really appreciate Jim reminding me of this scene and doing such a good job of describing it. I went back and looked at my notes for this film, and I mentioned that there are times where you just want to block out all of the fighting and everybody drudging up the past and escape from it for a little bit, but then it's balanced by these wonderfully cathartic moments that two people share. Sometimes they're really simple and sometimes they're really quiet and that makes up for all of the other noise. In some ways, this scene is the opposite of that in that it's a moment of fun and it's a positive bit of bonding as they're sharing this odd custom and competing over who can load the dishwasher better. And every family has these types of customs. It's something that we can all relate to on some level. And as Jim pointed out, and to clarify, it is, of course, Tunde Adebempe, the groom to Rachel, of course, not the bride, who is there with Bill Irwin, the father, in that scene. And it is just this gut punch of grief. And it's a moment where he is, on one level, welcoming a new son into his family and being reminded of the son he lost along the way. And the most common word I think I saw in any of the tributes to Demi I saw online was Empathy. And you just see it in scenes like this and so many other scenes from his films where his instinct is to allow those spaces for really raw emotion and grief. And sometimes it's anger, sometimes it's disappointment. But he is constantly providing us with these little, fragile human moments to encourage our connection to them. And not a connection in terms of, oh, I feel sorry for them or I pity them, but I, I understand them. I know what they're feeling.
1: He was a master. Yeah, I'm glad that you have that on your list because I saw that one come up maybe more often than anything else on Twitter. There were a Facebook. few on Twitter yeah, as well. Yeah, a number of people really connect with that mm-hmm. that scene. My number four is the once-in-a-lifetime number from Stop Making Sense. This is his document of Talking Heads. 1983 tour whole thing is music so for this list the way I was going I had to choose something from it watching this again uh, which I did Debbie and I did with her parents who are huge fans of this concert documentary and it was fun watching it with them I realized you know David Byrne is really the auteur here of this whole film as songwriter but also as stage presence Mm -hmm. and really as you know an installation artist given all the weird things going on on the stage during this performance, Demi is generous enough. I think I've used generous twice now, if not more times. Is generous enough of a filmmaker to let Burn be the auteur and know that that's where the movie is and how to step aside or stand out of the way of what Burn is offering yeah, there. It's and about of course, the showcasing Burn. Yes, and that band. Yeah, not Jonathan Demi. Absolutely, the right decision. But there is one perfect shot in this once in a lifetime number that is all about Demi getting the right angle at just the right moment. And I imagine that's what you have to look for when you're Mm -hmm. doing concert documentaries like this, right? Because you're limited in what you can do and where the camera can be, so you're hoping for that moment. And he gets it here, where Byrne is on the right side of the screen and the backup singers and dancers, Edna Holt and Lynn Mabry, they're on the left. And when Demi cuts to them, They're just coming up from this amazing backbend, kind of mimicking a move Byrne had just been doing. And you'll notice that above them are the two keyboardists, perfectly aligned in the frame. So there's beautiful composition going on here. What I also like, though, is that it captures this idea of inclusiveness that is a through line in his films, and particularly, I think, in his concert films. Just gathering performers in the same frame as they're creating something together. I think that defined Demi's last film, another really good concert doc, Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. I highlighted a moment like that at our live show as one of the musical moments of last year, so I'll put a screenshot of this image I'm talking about on my Larson on Film Facebook page, and maybe we can put yeah, one we'll on the put show it on our notes top five page too to, to give you an idea of how how it looks. It's just this, you know, single shot that's like, oh, that that nails it. Yeah,
3: I think I probably could have done an entire top five or ten just from Stop Making Sense. So, so good, we'll get there here in a little bit. My number four is appropriately a music moment, though I'm not sure it's one of the go-to music moments most people who love his work would think of. For me, it's all about what is happening between the two characters and what Demi showcases there with the music as a background piece. And it's from the movie Something Wild. Started off as a blind spot for us, talked about earlier in the show, of course. And it's when Audrey slash Lulu's mom plays Box minuet in G Mm. on her harpsichord as they sit across from her just in front of the window and watch silently. Now, I should say that the element for me that this moment, and more this movie, is getting at with Demi is how eclectic he was. The variety of types of films he made. Someone I read somewhere said he never made the same movie twice, and that's probably true even when he was making yet another Neil Young Musical documentary. I'm sure he found some other spin, some other approach for that material. I haven't seen those movies, but whether it was documentaries, dramas, thrillers, comedies, concert movies, art house films, mainstream films, big prestige pictures that won Oscars, Demi really could do it all. And something wild, I feel like, in some ways, is a pure distillation of that eclectic nature because it is so many types of films all rolled into one, and yet. It completely works. It is a little dark, but it's also wacky and funny, and it is romantic at times as well, certainly. And for me, this one scene, listening to the mom play the harpsichord, is a lovely, quiet, restrained moment in a movie that is kind of zany and so high energy. We talked about the fantasy element at play in Something Wild. This fits right in with that scheme because you've got the approving mom playing the music in her nice little suburban house, the dog looking up at her, at her feet. Her daughter and loving husband are looking on. And at one point, Lulu just sneaks a glance at Charlie. He looks back at her, then looks away quickly and realizes she's still looking at him. And so he looks back and he gets this little kind of mischievous smile on his face. And that compels her to look down sheepishly. It's this lovely bit of courtship that happens with these two people that feels completely authentic in what is otherwise a completely artificial scenario. And everything that's occurred between them up to this point has been completely artificial. But we have never seen, especially with Griffith's character, this tamer, more domesticated side of her. But in that moment, they are both happy. And it may be the only moment in the film where they are truly that happy. They're trying to get back to that okay. at other points in the movie, but it's there. And the fact that Demi gives us that scene in otherwise a moment, I'm sure on paper, someone could have looked at it and said, well, we could lose this. This is this is two minutes of unnecessary storytelling, but it's so crucial to really understanding and caring about these characters. So, again, it's just that time he allows for individual characters or a pair of characters to reveal themselves
1: Without saying or really even doing anything, we just get to witness their behavior. Yeah, that scene works well with the idea that we were talking about the review of American Dream, too, you know, and, and having these markers of what it should be. The whole stop at her mother's house is kind of a a jumping into here's what traditional life, the life you should be striving for, mm-hmm. looks like. You know, you have this tidy house you're the married couple who are visiting home even how they say goodbye yeah you know the falseness of their sure. goodbye is uh yeah kind of a nice ironic touch but at the same time that whole sequence has a lot of genuine moments to it as well
0: mm-hmm. oh, goodbye mama we'll try and get
2: down more often it's just charlie's job keeps me so busy oh i understand dear just come when you can okay give her a kiss
5: Oh, I'm no, sorry. Goodbye, pitchers. She's my mama Charlie
1: kiss My number 3 comes from Beloved and sort of a throwaway moment here of Baby Suggs preaching in the woods. This is Demi's 1998 adaptation of the Toni Morrison historical novel. It's about a family of escaped slaves who are trying to establish a new life in Ohio even as they're haunted by their past and Haunted literally. This is first and foremost a ghost story. So another, you're talking about the different genres that Demi has played with. He did a thriller with Science of the Lambs, of course, and this is really at heart a ghost story. Now, it might seem like one of the odder titles in Demi's filmography, partly because of that, I think, but You know, if you notice how much attention he gives in his films to a certain element of African-American culture, and we touched on a few things in the Something Wild review, you can maybe understand why Oprah Winfrey, who stars here alongside Danny Glover and was a producer, wanted to work with Demi on this. In keeping with my musical theme, I'm going to choose this, another aside scene, extraneous scene. I'm thinking, like, you know, if the studios really wanted to go after Demi's pictures, they would just take out everything that's special about him, wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. And, and this would be another example of that. Uh, it's a minor character here, Baby Suggs, played by Bea Richards. Despite her name, she's a grandmother, so very old woman, this grandmother figure who gathers the ex-slaves in the woods for these healing-slash-empowering song-and-dance experiences.
3: Let your wives and your children see you dead.
6: So this is
1: really moving on a number of levels. There's, you know, real heartache here, but also joyousness and encouragement. And it's interesting, we've alluded to a few times that Demi isn't always the flashiest of filmmakers with the camera. And here he makes maybe one of his flashier choices by as the dancers are moving in a circle, he's going around counterclockwise uh, in this unbroken, circular shot. And it just, it feels just right for this moment, which is supposed to be absolutely communal. Uh, he makes the choice to have the camera be a part of that as well.
3: Yeah, Beloved is one of my regrets, unfortunately, when it comes to Demi's work. Great choice, though. My number three Demi moment comes from the movie Philadelphia, and the element that I wanted to really speak to here, Josh, with his work maybe the most obvious stylistic choice that defines Demi is his use of point of view shots and the way those point of view shots then in their own subtle way break the fourth wall where he shows characters to be looking right at the camera very often when they are speaking to another character in the scene and the scene I chose from Philadelphia I'm calling I have a case it's where Tom Hanks Andrew Beckett goes to meet Denzel Washington's Joe Miller to see if he'll represent him. They've already met earlier in the film, actually, as adversaries, as lawyers. And he does say to Denzel's character that he was his 10th choice, but here he is. He needs representation. And I could definitely break down how Demi sets up the dynamic between them when Beckett walks in and admits that he has AIDS and everything that happens there with the camera. But I'm going to focus on the flashback that occurs and then what follows. Because we do see as he starts to tell his story to Joe, we see the actual moment where he's called before the other partners and is told that they are going to let him go. And when it sets in finally that he is going to be fired, we see Hanks in an extreme close up looking right at us. It's almost as if he's looking at us crying for help. It completely heightens his sense of duress. And then the cut is to Jason Robards, the lead partner and really his mentor. He's in a more traditional close-up. He's still looking right at the camera, but it's a more traditional composed close-up. He's in control. He's unmoved. And now it becomes almost like we're the ones being judged by his character in that scene. It cuts away to a side long shot. It shows the group as they stand to leave. It's almost as if they're saying, you know what, we're done. This encounter's over. There's no more connection there with those close-ups, but it goes back to that extreme close-up of Beckett and we get a series of alternating shots between him and the different partners. They're all in close-up looking right at the camera, scolding us, shaming us along with Beckett. Some are standing and there's Beckett. He is frozen in that extreme close-up. The shot holds him there as if he can't be moved. He's completely powerless, which he is effectively in the scene. It really strikes me, Josh, that if Hank's or his character, Beckett, in this moment, wanted to stand up and fight back, the frame wouldn't have let him. Demi is repressing him with that framing. And then there's this wonderful cut from that face, from Beckett's face, back to the present to Denzel sitting across from him at his desk, and it tracks forward into, again, a more traditional close-up of Denzel, and he says, so you were concealing your illness, and it's clear that he's not really going to be on his side in this. He, too, is going to now be judging and dismissing Hanks' character. He's essentially playing the same role as Robards and the other partners, The next set of cuts is between these static close-ups of Denzel and a camera that is just slowly getting closer and closer. Every time we cut back to Hanks, the camera's moving closer and closer until he's ultimately in that exact same position as he was with the partners. Extreme close-up, being held powerless, being shamed, and then dismissed. It is all told so brilliantly in the editing and in the choice of those shots, everything you need to know about the dynamic between the characters in those scenes is all there. You could take out the dialogue completely, honestly,
1: and take away everything you needed to know about it. Yeah, you know, he, he uses the extreme close-up in a variety of ways, but I think... One of the more prominent ones is back to that idea you mentioned of empathy. Mm-hmm. And we're when we're that tight on someone, looking directly at them, you're forced to reckon with them, right? Their Their situation and their experience. So, yeah, that's a crucial tool he employs. My number two, you spoiled a little bit in our Something Wild review when you mentioned the end credit sequence. Uh-huh. I had to include that here. It's just such a wonderful surprise to this talk movie. about breaking the fourth wall oh yeah absolutely it's Sister Carol doing this reggae influenced rendition of Wild Thing and you know the camera pans from our two main characters it essentially pans from the ending of any other film right. right they get in the car together and they take off we look back across the sidewalk to the building where Sister Carol is standing against it and she was playing the waitress in the previous scene so we have some context for who she is but then she just breaks into this song, looking right at the camera again. uh
3: uh-huh. Right.
2: Uh-ho. Come shout and say, join in the ring. It could be queen or it could be king. You go your way and I go mine. As long as you just make it fun. You can bring a shine some drinking wine.
1: It's just a great way to end a film, but also not only breaking the fourth wall as much as throwing a party that crashes into the fourth wall and, and, and inviting us all along. And if, you know, if there's ever a movie you want to sit through the end credits for, this is it. You don't want to leave at that point. No, so. you don't. It
3: is such a refreshing moment, such a surprise at the end of Something Wild. My number two is from The Silence of the Lambs, and it's probably the closest scene to an iconic one that everyone will think of, though there are many from that film. And it's that first meeting between Clarice and Hannibal Lecter. And what we really see Demi do here is, again, use close-ups really effectively. And I'm distinguishing a little bit, Josh, between that breaking the fourth wall and POV element from just the use of close-ups. Even though that use of close-ups and the way he chooses to break the fourth wall is such a big part of how he does use those tight shots. And certainly here, when we're watching this first showdown of sorts, as they feel each other out, as the FBI agent in training, Clarice Starling, goes to meet with Hannibal Lecter, the fact that he is often shot in extreme close-up talking right to us, that heightens just how creepy and Mm -hmm. scary the whole proceeding is. But for me, it's less about the characters looking at us and how we may be implicated and more about how Demi uses close-ups to heighten the emotion and the intensity of a scene. So this whole sequence is about seven minutes long and starts with a fantastic point-of-view shot, of course, where Clarice walks around the corner and sees Lecter just standing there, perfectly still, looking right at us. It's her point-of-view that we are seeing. And we see most of his body, it's from, you know, kind of the ankles up That's one of only two times, I think, in the scene we get a full sense of Lecter standing there. Otherwise, the scene is built on these much tighter, closer shots, and in some ways, it's an interesting contrast to the Philadelphia scene I just talked about, Josh, because Clarice is like Beckett in that she's in a position of need in this exchange between two people, a position of weakness, asking for help, but she's also kind of like Joe Miller in that she's very afraid of Lecter, just as he's afraid of Beckett and doesn't even want to get, you know, too close to him. She, of course, even with that glass separating them, doesn't want to get too close. The scene starts, she's seated, traditional close-up over-the-shoulder shot suggests some bit of safety, or at least trying to appear that she feels safe and comfortable. He's frequently in that extreme close-up, which here, rather than making him appear confined and powerless like it did Beckett, it makes him seem even more menacing and powerful. He fills up the frame and will always fill up the frame. And as he further prods and tests her, she now gets put in that tighter close-up, which we are then so drawn to every slight facial tick Of Jodie Foster there. So it heightens her uncertainty. Every movement is a betrayal of her fear and anxiety while when we cut back to Lecter in those close-ups he still exudes control and the scene culminates, people probably remember, with him sussing out her white trash upbringing and the camera moving slowly forward on both of them he's drilling into their psyches and they are truly getting into each other's heads, and the camera reflects that. There, we feel like we are part of that. And when she pushes back, and he loses interest, Josh, that close-up scheme is broken.
0: You see a lot, doctor. when are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? What about it? Why don't you? Why don't you look at yourself and write down what you see? And maybe. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. You fly back to school now, little Starling. Fly, fly,
3: fly. Again, there is some kind of bond that happens between characters when Demi chooses to link them that way and when something happens to jar that the camera shifts with them Demi said in an article I found that he was madly in love with close-ups because I'm madly in love with actors hmm. and that's as good an explanation as any for why you would choose to use him as we've shown hopefully here he's used them in a variety of different ways to get different results but real quick I'll go back to something wild too. that end scene from something wild when Melanie Griffith's character appears Every other director you've ever seen would start with an establishing shot that shows her appearing on the street and what she's wearing and how she looks. He doesn't do it. She shows up. We see her in a close up. The camera stays on a close up the whole time until she moves to the car and we see her get in the car and we see her. Otherwise, she's sort of this detached figure. He just doesn't need to construct a scene or want to construct a scene in those conventional ways. If he wants to use
1: a series of just close ups, he'll do it. Yeah, you know, Silence is interesting because it's thought of as his most traditional, and maybe that's because of the Oscar wins. But when you do start breaking it down that way, you see all the special things that that he brought to it. Really, really like Silence
3: of the Lambs. So before we get to our number one picks, we do have someone else who's a big fan of Silence of the Lambs.
4: Hi, this is Allison Nastasi, one of the editors at FlavorWire.com. One of my favorite scenes in a Jonathan Demme film is in his 1991 Oscar winner, The Silence of the Lambs. Jodie Foster's FBI agent Clarice Starling descends into the basement of the killer, Buffalo Bill. The only sound we hear during the scene is her frantic breathing as she grasps for something, anything, in this inky darkness while the killer watches her silently with night vision goggles. We get a point of view shot with the killer's hand reaching for Clarice, caressing the air around her. And that moment for me toys with the film's overall concept of the serial killer as the mythic hero, how we both idolize and fear them. And it goes back to Clarice's relationship with Anthony Hopkins' Hannibal Lecter, as both characters hunger to know more about the darkest recesses of the human soul.
3: Such a great choice there from Allison. Certainly one I considered, and I'm not sure that there is a single scarier moment that really... As I watch it, even as I've seen it multiple times, it kind of takes your breath away watching that whole pitch black sequence where
1: she's trying to catch Buffalo Bill. Yeah, the claustrophobia alone to that is just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. All right, we're at our number ones, and mine comes from the 1980 film Melvin and Howard. This is based on the bizarre true story of this down-and-out aspiring singer-songwriter, Melvin Dumar who picks up a hitchhiker one night, drives him to Vegas, and then when he drops him off, this hitchhiker claims to be Howard Hughes. So then many years later, and this is after the movie, has traced Melvin's tumultuous life. This is a guy whose, you know, financial stability has constantly eluded him. He's a bit of a dreamer. He's always going after these unattainable possessions or sometimes picking them up, even though he can't really afford them. Um, After we see a lot of that, this will turns up. And... It claims to be from Howard Hughes, and it states that Hughes left Melvin $156 million. So the movie, Melvin and Howard, isn't really concerned with the veracity of all of this. It's more a rumination, uh, again, on a familiar theme here, the American dream, and particularly the fickleness of the American dream here. This would have been a few years earlier than Something Wild, so coming out of the 70s. And especially that fickleness for someone who's a goofball dreamer, like Melvin and Paul Lamont plays Melvin. He's really fun in the role. Jason Robards plays Howard here, and he only gets a few minutes of screen time right at the beginning, but that's where my scene is coming from. Uh, This is after Melvin subjects his passenger to this terrible new Christmas song that he's written that he thinks is going to be a huge hit. So he sings this for Howard, and then he cajoles howard into singing his own favorite songs like pick what songs do you like what's a favorite song of yours and so howard reluctantly starts humming bye bye blackbird and then eventually he gets a little bit more into it
5: that's nice that's real nice but i don't think i heard any words any words
0: Pack up all
6: my cares and lo, here I go singing low. Bye bye, blackbird, where somebody waits for me. Sugar sweet, so is she. Bye bye, blackbird.
1: So the movie's suggestion is that this moment of connection over music, again, is enough to have stuck with Howard Hughes for years and perhaps even moved him to include Melvin in his last will and testament. Seems far-fetched, but when it's delivered with this demi-touch, um, I, I at least believe it. He makes, you, he makes the whole movie hinge on, on hmm. that in that use of music. So I knew that I wasn't going to have the strength or the
3: time to fit in the almost three hours of Beloved. But one of the reasons I was really excited for this list is that I was going to fill in another blind spot. I was going to see Melvin and Howard, a movie I've always wanted to catch up with. And I couldn't find it anywhere. Couldn't buy it on Amazon. Couldn't stream it anywhere. Not on iTunes, not on Netflix. I couldn't pick it up. So I apologize. I really wanted to see it for this list. Couldn't happen.
1: Yeah, that's it's a shame. And it's we said that about something wild, too, right? Hard to find. It's hard to find. And I think... In the wake of his passing, we'll see some re-releases. I'm sure something like that will happen, but I think it speaks to the idiosyncrasy of these titles, too, right? They're just, you know, distributors don't know what to do with them Mm -hmm. because you can't pigeonhole them. So and, and sometimes that means
3: they're hard to find. Well, my number one is a perfect culmination here to your list, certainly, Josh. The other element I was not going to overlook from Demi's work is his use of music the way music is a character in the films of Jonathan Demme. And I would say in this example too, Josh, character becomes music as we talk about David Byrne from Stop Making Sense, the Talking Heads concert movie and the opening Psycho Killer. If you are out there and somehow you think I don't ever need to see Stop Making Sense, I'm just not a huge Talking Heads fan or their music, whatever, just doesn't completely work for me, you need to stop whatever you're doing. Go to filmspotting.net, go to our top five page, or you can go to YouTube and find it there and click on the link for this opening scene because it's a brilliant song and it's a remarkable opening to a film. Now, I do love it just because I'm such a big fan of that Talking Heads song. It's probably my favorite song by the group. But what really stands out for me, Josh, is the way Demi manages to give us a new take on the concert film and here what he does is he essentially deconstructs it down to its primal elements it starts with david Byrne bringing a boombox out onto the stage and hitting play
2: Hi. i got a tape i want to play
3: and then playing along with that boombox his guitar ...adding his voice to it. He pretty much carries the whole song himself with just those elements. And then the bass gets added. The other instruments, as the concert gets going, get filled in around him. We see not only all the different pieces of the band as individuals coming together to form the group, but we see parts of the stage that you would never see in most concert films. You see all of the backstage stuff, all of the other elements that go into a show that the audience doesn't see, but that's the key. We're on the stage. We have any seat we want, and we get every seat you could possibly want with Demi's camera. So I love that element, but I also love the way, again, he somewhat breaks the fourth wall because not only are we allowed to sit wherever we want but up until very late in the film we never see the audience in the movie and you think about every music video you've seen that's a live performance or every concert film you're used to seeing they're always cutting to the crowd to show how people are reacting and in a way what that does is it forces you as an audience member to have a certain reaction oh everybody's emotional right now. Oh, everybody's Mm -hmm. really happy right now. They're dancing. It cues you to how you should be responding. But of course, this is the talking heads and it's more of an art installation piece than anything. And we don't get that direction from the audience. Demi wants to just show us the band and allow us to draw our own conclusions about whatever is happening on the stage. So again, nobody to indicate how we're supposed to respond or react, which is the way it should be with any great piece of art, and stop making sense, is absolutely a great piece of art.
1: Yeah, I liked that touch that we didn't have to deal with the audience at all till really almost the last number. I think it is, and you know the the notion of bringing the band members out one at a time. I, I think that might have been something that Byrne had orchestrated as part of this particular tour, but it worked so well with demi sensibility in Mm -hmm. that again it emphasizes this communal nature of everyone gets their moment right as the stage crew slides out the the drummer and then slides out somebody else we we get to see this band actually as much as it is burns all in burns head right we still get to see that it is a work of community and that's the sort of thing that demi emphasized so much
3: I like that you added that bit about Burns' head and it ultimately being about community because I will throw out there that if you are a fan of the movie Stop Making Sense and you haven't seen the documentary now parody of Stop Making Sense that Bill Hader and Fred Armisen did... It's so perfect. It's such a perfect companion to the actual film. I'll link to any information I can find about that in our show notes at filmspotting.net as well. We have gone on long here about Jonathan Demi. I think maybe we'll hold off on any honorable mentions and save them for perhaps next week, Josh. But we do have one more voicemail that we wanted to play that comes to us from a fellow filmmaker and a Chicago one at that, Stephen Cohn.
0: Hi, I'm Stephen Cohn, Chicago-based filmmaker, um... Demi was always on the record as saying he followed his enthusiasm wherever he went, and that was his only guiding principle. And and it's basically because of that philosophy that I've been calling him my favorite filmmaker for years. Not to mention I love the movies, of course. But um, I'll never forget my Southern Baptist minister father taking me to see Philadelphia uh, at the age of 12 and being um, sort of wowed by the force of... His expression. I'll never forget Baby Suggs' sermons in *Beloved*. I'll never forget um, that um, astonishing end of Rachel getting married when the family is parting ways, which is so beautifully done. And I'll never forget the the uh, effect he had on me and and his work. And you know, let's keep watching his movies.
3: We will definitely keep doing that. Thank you very much, Stephen. Always appreciate. His insights, and we should mention that Stephen has a new film out, Princess Sid, C-Y-D, that just had its premiere at the Maryland Film Festival. Really nice write-up about the film over at Salon.com, titled The Coming-of-Age Film Comes of Age. So excited to see that movie. Maybe, Josh, since he is a contributor here to Film Spotting now, I think he needs to add that to his business card. He's appearing regularly and I'm, I'm sure he already has yeah. that on his business card. Maybe we, maybe we can get a link or something. I don't know. And check nice. out the movie. Yeah. Congrats on your success, Stephen. Hope you have more with the movie. And that is our Jonathan Demi tribute, our top five Demi moments. We would love to hear your choices. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net or, of course, send us one of
1: those audio files. Why don't you also head over to filmspotting.net? You could find 12 years of reviews, interviews and top fives there. And... While you're checking out FilmSpotting, how about the rest of the FilmSpotting family, The Next Picture Show, and FilmSpotting SVU, you can find both of those in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Out wide this
3: weekend, King Arthur Legend of the Sword. Guy Ritchie does a Sherlock Holmes-style makeover on the King Arthur Legend. Jude Law and Charlie Hunnam stars Snatched. Starring Amy Schumer and Goldie Hawn in that comedy. In limited release, The Wall, directed by Born Identity and Edge of Tomorrow director Doug Lyman about an American sniper and his spotter who are engaged in a deadly cat and mouse game with an Iraqi sniper. It stars John Cena and Aaron Taylor Johnson. The Lovers, the separation of a long-married couple goes awry when they fall for each other again. Deborah Winger and Tracy Letts star in that one. And Chuck, the story of Chuck Webner, the real Rocky Balboa, Liev Schreiber stars in that one, along with Elizabeth Moss and Naomi Watts. That's a cast. Yeah, it is a great cast and a film I'm curious about because I'm familiar with the Rocky legend, if you will, and the fact that I think Chuck at one point even sued Sylvester Stallone claiming that it pulled a little too closely from his life the chicago critics film festival is going on now at the music box for info and the lineup go to chicagocriticsfilmfestival.com next week we will talk about ridley scott's alien covenant and share our top five alien attacks if you have a favorite alien attack scene leave us a short voicemail and we may use it in next week's show that number again is three one two Two six
1: four zero seven four four, or
3: you can send us an mp3 file feedback at filmspotting.net.
1: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe DeSoe and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
0: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.